I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. But no doubt everyone listening knows who we are already, right, Sugi? Because our publicity is so awesome. We are like the most highly anticipated podcast of the Midwest list or something. <laughs> are we? Does that exist? And if it know. did, how would we get there? I do think that publicity, like God, kind of works in mysterious ways. Well, actually, we're pretending like we don't know what list we're on, but the truth is, Sugi, we know exactly what list we've been on, and we retweet (laughs) them assiduously. We check it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, in this episode, we're going to demystify some of how literary publicity works. Writer Tom Barbash is going to be with us in the second half of the show to talk to us about what it feels like to publicize a book. His new book is coming out right now. But first, we have two terrific publicists with us. Carla Bruce Eddings of Algonquin and Karen Gu of Grey Wolf. Both are also writers. Carla is now a senior publicist at Algonquin Books slash Algonquin Young Readers and a freelance writer living in Brooklyn. She writes about the intersections of motherhood, race, and pop culture. A voracious reader, she's also books editor at Well Read Black Girl and co-organizer of its inaugural festival in fall 2017. Her essay, Amazing Grace, is in the anthology Well Read Black Girl, Finding Our Voices, Discovering Ourselves, which came out in October. Welcome, Carla. Hi, thanks for having me. And Karen Gu is a publicity associate at Grey Wolf based in Minneapolis, Uh, Favorite city of this show. Second favorite city of this show. Karen is also a fiction writer. She was a 2017 through 2018 fiction fellow in the Loft Mentor Series and a 2018 Jack Jones Retreat Fellow. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. 
We're really excited and lucky to have both of you here. Lots of people in publishing are also writers. We'd love to hear about how you started to work in publicity specifically. Carla, you were previously a teacher. How did you decide that this was an aspect of the publishing world in which you wanted to be involved as your full-time job? When I was looking for a job, I really didn't know much about publicity specifically. I kind of just knew I wanted to work in publishing. And I guess like most people who are just kind of starting out, I thought that was kind of just editorial. Um, but as I was doing more research and, and clicking on things that I started to realize that publicists were responsible for, it really felt like what publicists did was much more aligned to what I was already was much more aligned to my existing relationship with books. Um, I love attending book events. I love discovering interviews with like my favorite authors. I really loved hearing about the next books I should be reading. So having the chance to be a part of that kind of behind the scenes process really felt appealing to me and really exciting. And Karen, you moved to Minneapolis from Chicago to work at Greywell. What were you doing before that? And how did you end up in publicity? Yes, I moved to Minneapolis sight unseen. I've never even been to Minnesota before. And um, when I finished college in Chicago, like a lot of postgrads, I jumped around a few different jobs. Um, probably the most like influential job that contributed to me moving to publishing is I worked um, as sort of a seasonal events associate for the Chicago Humanities Festival. And um, in that year, in their 2014 season, they had Eula Biss and Leslie Jameson as guests. So I made sure to, you know, note that in my cover letter for Grey Wolf. <laughs> um, and I think it was a pretty good hook. It was timely and, um, you know, familiar. And I, you know, with arts jobs in Chicago, I did have a hard time finding full-time work. I, you know, sold clothes. I scooped ice cream. I did a bunch of odd things. And then I kind of widened my net, which is how I got hired um, at Grey Wolf, just applying to places outside of the city. Um, and so I started on as an ad administrative assistant in 2015. And then just kind of with a lot of entry-level publishing jobs, there's some turnover, some people left, and then I went on to be the assistant for the marketing and publicity department, and then was promoted to my current title of publicity associate. And just to jump off what Carlo was saying, I think definitely at the outset, you know, the admin job for me at Grey Wolf was like my education in publishing. I had not interned in publishing before, so it's my first full-time publishing job, and I think through all the departments, publicity is like, I think, the one that moves at the quickest pace. So it's very exciting. Um, it can be occasionally stressful because of the same reason, but um, you are kind of always on the pulse of what's coming in terms of what are the big books to read. You know, you get to communicate your passion for a book, which is exciting. Um, so it was a really good fit for me to move in that direction. So what is a standard day like for, for you? How many different writers and kinds of media are you working with? Um, this is Karen. I would say that every day is a little bit different. Here's like a range of things that I could do on any given day. Um, building mailing lists for galleys or advanced finish copies. Um, so galleys, we're typically sending out um, six months in advance, and then we get the early finish copies, and we try to send those out another round of uh, media push um, two months before publication. Um, and with that, it's researching targeted outlets, curating 
getting the list for different books. Um, and then, of course, once you send out the book, you want to follow up. So that's emails, emails, emails. Um, you want to talk with the author about their tour plans and then reach out to bookstores to see if they'll host. Then coordinating travel, coordinating um you know, review coverage, interviews, and then also communicating that review coverage to authors if they do want to see it. And um, also social media thrown in there as well. So definitely a lot going on on any given day. How many um, emails do you have in your inbox? Oh, you don't want to know. Question. No, I want to know. This is why you're here. I cannot de- disclose <laughs> that over this podcast. It's too embarrassing. <laughs> That's one of my personal resolutions to keep up on, you know, email hygiene. But that goes back to the fast paced nature of publicity. The amount of emails is kind of shocking sometimes. Does that sound familiar to you, Carla? Yes, absolutely. I the first thing that comes to mind whenever anyone asks me, what is a typical day is just the word emails. <laughs> um, I see people talking about getting to inbox zero and I'm like, wow, what is that like? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's exciting to have my job be talking about books that I love and want people to read, even though, you know, sending out so many emails for so many books can be a little overwhelming at times. Um, it really is a labor of love. Um, I really enjoy working on the books where we're like partnering with different kinds of, um, where we just have a kind of different sort of model for publicity. Um, and it's not just the standard, like, please cover this book in this, you know, pretty typical way. Um, you know, that can't be the case for every single book, every single time, but it definitely helps to shake things up a bit. And then also on a, I guess not typical day, but it is really nice to be able to step out of the office and meet face to face with editors or reviewers and just kind of hear from them specifically what they're looking for, what they're most interested in, what they would like to cover um, and really just step away from the computer and be reminded that like we're sending these books to like real people who have real interests and interests that change. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, there's a lot of turnover in media. So being able to stay on top of that is really helpful. So you mentioned shaking things up. Can you, what would an example of that be? One that, something that you worked on or something that you admired, um, a publicity model that you thought worked well in a way that maybe couldn't have been anticipated or was just different? I guess when I think of like different or unanticipated, honestly, the first book that comes to mind is Freshwater by Kweke Amezi. I really think the like the campaign, the publicity, like all the buzz about that, incredible book last year was just really stand out um, by Grove Atlantic. And I mean, if you talk to anyone who knows me, they'll tell you that I didn't stop talking about that book for the entirety of 2018. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to give myself some credit (laughs) for that too. But what did they do different? Like, what did you feel like was special? I mean, uh, granted, you have to like the book first. I mean, it's a good book, (laughs) right? But was there something that you felt in their marketing campaign was special? Um, I guess it was really just the kind of the content of the coverage, the interviews, the way that people were talking about the book, I guess the kinds of interviews that they were, that Okweke was um, participating in, I just felt like it went deeper and it was a lot more intense than I normally see in, in, um, in fiction. Um, and I just thought that that corresponded really well to the intensity of the book. And I really appreciate when um, I feel like the coverage is as piercing and as, um, I guess, incisive as the content itself. I just thought that 
they did a really great job being responsive. I mean, I also remember um, they wrote a piece that was maybe it was in the cut and it was it just sort of like their writing was so powerful that all of the pieces that um, supported that book that were the answers that were given in interviews. Um, so the writer is doing a lot of work to to push the book. And then I wonder what your experiences are with editors, agents and, and outside publicists to make campaigns more intense or special in in that way that you're talking about. All the way in. This is Karen. On um, in terms of, um, I'll just really quickly say that a campaign I admired from out of Grey Wolf. I mean, not from Grey Wolf. From FSG was um, my favorite book of 2018 was Severance by Ling Ma. And I think kind of going with what Carla was saying, I was super impressed with the breadth um, and depth of the review coverage that came in for that book. I think that the time it was. It was like the perfect time to publish it. All these like millennial writers commenting on, it's a very kind of like mm, dystopic idea of what late stage capitalism is. Plus it's like an apocalyptic, like, you know, um, there's like a sort of SARS-like fever going around that's ending the world. So it's kind of the like the perfect political and cultural moment for this book to come out. So I think in that sense, it was an incredibly successful campaign. And I also want to shout out FSG's, you know, promotional marketing team, because I saw that they sent out galleys. Um, The cover, if people haven't seen it, it's this amazing pink cover. It looks like a document or like envelope. Um, And they sent them out with like pink flu masks. And uh, they also (laughs) sent it out with... Yeah, it was really perfect. And they also sent out moisturizing sheet masks, like the kinds you would get at Sephora. So I just thought it was a really fun and creative promotional um, package to send with galleys and to get reviewers and booksellers really interested in opening the novel. So as a uh, as a person who has worked with the FSG uh, publicity department, I would echo your uh, belief that they do a great job. They They are really quite good. Um, I'm yeah. curious. I'm curious about how much time you spend on social media, Karen. You're in charge of Gray Wolf's Instagram feed, which has been wildly popular, uh, with all of these beautiful images of covers against matching walls. And listeners, if you haven't seen this, you should check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. Um, how much of this is part of a publicist's job now? And Karen, how did you come up with that idea? Um, first of all, thank you so much for the kind words about the Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's definitely one of uh, my favorite parts of my job um i would say just first um in terms of what how much social media is part of a publicist's job i think it's a huge part of their job um i think some houses probably have maybe someone who's in charge of like all social media but at least at gray wolf um myself and my colleague caroline we split the social media so she handles facebook and twitter and i handle the instagram and it's just a crucial way to communicate um, review coverage, news, um, you know, sort of amplify what our authors are talking about um, to develop the brand personality of the house. Um, For an example of that, I would note that um, in our office, we're often visited by this beautiful red-tailed hawk and people on social media really love the bird content. Um, And then it's also a great research tool for publicists to see what critics are reviewing and reading and excited about and to see, you know, if they might be interested in, you know, another book that's translated from Christina McSweeney, if they've covered, you know, 
other books that have been translated by her, for example. Um, and then with the Instagram, I actually went back in the feed to see where the like outside wall type photo first started. And I think it was, we had this book, um, called cities I've never lived in by Sarah Micah. And on the cover, there's these neon dots. Um, so I had seen some, you know, spray paint on the sidewalk and it looked very similar to the tone of the cover illustration so I think that was the main that was the germ of the outside books placement and uh, it just goes with like a lot of sort of photo advice that outside you know diffuse natural light is the best light to use when taking a photo and there's an element of unexpectedness to seeing a book in you know like on a wall or on the ground that I think is um, has worked really well for us. Carla, how about you? What's your relationship with uh, social media as part of your work? Yeah, I definitely agree with Karen um, in terms of like using social media as a research tool, um, just being able to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of what people are talking about, what they're looking at, what they're what they need an escape from, because um, it it's so draining um, being on social media because there's so much news saturation. Mm-hmm. But it's also for the same reason, it's really nice to be there just to be able to provide content about books and about authors and like things that give people a bit of an escape. Um, and I, I do love being hands-on with social media as much as I can, because it's just, it's fun to talk about things that are pleasant <laughs> um, and offer people a way away from uh, everything going on in the world that they want to, you know, not think about for a little while. <laughs> you possibly be referring to, <laughs> you know, just the thing. Twitter, yeah. Well, it's so interesting that both of you mentioned researching reviewers. Now, I think that I think that what this means, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that one of the most important jobs that a publicist can do is to match reviewers to books or match an interviewer to an author. Like this interviewer is going to be good with this author, like the book you were talking about earlier, Carla. And, and, or this review, I think will handle this material. Well, is, isn't that an important thing that you do? Oh yeah. Um, could you talk about that both of you a little bit? Yeah, I think, I think it's, um, a good way to think of publicity as a kind of matchmaking. Um, and in one sense, you're always going to have the outlets that you're going to, you want to send every book, for example, to, you know, your big national legacy outlets like New York Times, New Yorker, what have you. Um, you just, you know, you just want to make sure that you're covering that area. But then at the same time, for every book, you're going to have a slightly different list because of the content of the book. Maybe, you know, um, one example I'll note is that um, we have a book coming out called Oculus on January 15th, which is a poetry collection by Sally Wen Mao. And it's all about spectacle, technology, selfhood, uh, with a focus on women of color. And in particularly, um, particular, uh, the first Chinese American movie star, Anime Wong. So in that case, there's many different ways into the book. And for the campaign, what I tried to do is, you know, research a lot of film critics who have written on, you know, representation in film, um, who have written on, you know, for example, like Ghost in the Shell with Scarlett Johansson or like Aloha with Emma Stone um, or people who have written about Anna Mae Wong and like the history of her career. Um, so in that sense, not only, you know, going to the, the 
poetry critics that we work with often and the literary critics and all these big book editors, but then also reaching out to film critics, cultural critics, and, you know, people on, you know, the race and representation beat as well. That's such a great example because yeah. I've heard of that book because I was on Twitter and I'm fascinated by Anna May Wong and I'm fascinated by Anna May Wong because my friend Peter Ho Davies wrote about her in The Fortunes. And I clicked yes. on I clicked on an Oculus link like two days ago and was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get this book. That's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> this is Carla. I, I definitely agree with all of that. Um, one thing that we definitely tell authors, particularly debut authors, is that while we send books to, you know, the big names, the the things that, you know, we normally think of in terms of book coverage, there are so many different outlets now and so many different podcasts and, and blogs and websites and magazines that we can be pitching now that it's really imperative that we get to know, you know, what not just what is the book about, but like, what are you trying to say with the book? And, and who are the people that you really want to appeal to? And who are some audiences that, that you want to make sure know about this book? Because there are just s- such a wide breadth of um, people that we can pitch now. Um, and one thing I can say that can kind of be like a double-edged sword is like, when I'm doing this research and figuring out, okay, who's written about this? Who is interested in this topic or this person that may have ties to a book? It's important not to get too bogged down in, oh, this person wrote about this subject, so let me make sure to pitch them on something very similar, because nine times out of ten, they're not going to want to write about the same exact thing, Mm. particularly if they've already written about it in the past, like, year or so. So it's kind of important to keep in mind that you want to find someone who has kind of broad interest in what the book is about or what who the author is, if that makes sense, because you don't want to come to them and say, do you want to write about the same exact topic for this book that's coming out in three months? Because, you know, you'll either get an emphatic no or more likely just no response at all. I don't want every book on tiddlywinks that you guys have just because (laughs) I'm known to write about tiddlywinks. I can give you just, I mean, I can say that a thing that, you know, I sometimes review books and a thing that has came to my attention a few years ago that really, um, frankly, I found quite irritating was that I realized I had only ever been asked to review a book by a white writer, like maybe a white American writer once. And every other review I had been asked to do was connected in some way to race, otherness, or foreignness. Right. And I was sort of like, I have a pretty mainstream literary education. And, you know, who do we ask to review books? And, and what do we expect to be the breadth of people's interests? I really appreciate that point um and the way that you know i don't think people would necessarily expect me to be interested in anime wong and the reason that i am um you know has to do with this personal connection and to another book that i really loved but um i don't know i i yeah i like the idea that there's yeah people's interests are sometimes not what we expect either and one of the ways that i find that out a lot of the time i think is is social media and following writers who tweet like exactly like right not necessarily um, just about their books, but about other things that they're researching or just are interested in. And so I'm curious about how the two of you think about a writer's responsibility to do social media, because there's this idea that it's a big part of promoting books. And Carly, you, you talked about a little, this a little bit, that it's draining, and it, it also prevents people maybe from writing books. And <laughs> But there's this feeling that you have to do it. You've got to be on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and Reddit and Goodreads and Amazon and WhatsApp and Yik Yak. And <laughs> I'm like slightly exaggerating here, obviously, but I feel like I can sometimes see writers starting Twitter accounts when their books are coming out or sort of, you know, maybe that four months before when you've been asked to 
to maybe start one if you didn't have one. And guilty. <laughs> Whitney, Whitney, did you? Are you guilty of this? Because I totally to me, started my Twitter account after I had turned in the good lieutenant. That's it, man. That's all. I mean, I had other. I had other. I had a Facebook account that I'd had for a while. But I think the difference is right. I mean, it's one thing if you start it and it seems like you like it, but sometimes people mm-hmm. start it and it feels inorganic and rote and. I think I can tell when people aren't having fun. And then frankly, I don't want to read their feeds. And I'm also not sure that I see causation between small social media followings and book sales. And I wonder what you guys think about that and how you advise writers, especially reluctant writers, to handle social media. This is Carla. This is tricky. (laughs) Um, I definitely, like same as you, um, Sugi, I don't think it's helpful for someone who doesn't want to be on social media to try to be on social media because it yeah it does come off as very inauthentic and like why am I reading your feed if you clearly if like either there are no tweets or the tweets you are writing are just kind of like I don't know retweets of things that aren't relevant to even the book Um, (laughs) I I do think that social media is helpful particularly for writers who are starting out for many of the same reasons that it's helpful to be a publicist on social media. You're seeing what people are reading, what they're interested in, what reviewers are wanting to cover, maybe reviewers who would want to cover your book. Um, But I do think that a good marketing and publicity team should be able to fill in those gaps if you're not someone who's naturally adept to social media. Um, And if publishing a book does feel like a useful catalyst, then I say by all means, get on social media, figure it out and like, if you want to be there, be there. But if you don't want to, like, people have sold books before Twitter. Like, it's not impossible. <laughs> yeah. This is Karen. I agree, Carla, with um, what you said there. And I especially want to emphasize that I, if you're an emerging writer, if you're working on your first book, even though it may be counterproductive in terms of a time-wasting tool, I, I do think that you should join Twitter just to get a lay of the land in terms of the online literary community, because there's a lot to be learned about the industry, about you know following your favorite publishers, book critics, and writers, you know following LitHub, Electric Lit, The Millions, all those kinds of places are going to give you a good just give you a good introduction to the world that you will be in when you do sell your book and you're publishing your book. Um, I think that if it's incredibly painful, like I don't think you have to say, I'm going to tweet like three times a day and, you know, for, for the four months before my book comes out, but (laughs) you know, but like at least to, to have a sense of what's going on there and to be there so that if there is a writer or reviewer who's tagging you and in the, you know, link to your review, you can, you know, build on that connection. So you both offered a lot of helpful advice about what we can do to support our books. I'm curious about what writers can do to support publicists um, to make their lives easier. And what are some unexpected ways writers might have made your lives harder? What, What might mean, what might we not know that we're we're doing that are mucking things up. What what other advice can you offer us? Um, this is Karen. My main advice um, 
for writers in terms of um, building a good relationship with your publicist is open communication. So just letting us know from the outset, you know, what are your dream review outlets? What are your dream event venues? You know, what places do you want to go on tour because you have a strong community there? Who absolutely needs a galley right away? Um, you know, what are your connections in the media or, you know, academic world? Um, how do you want your book to be seen? And how do you not want your book to be seen? Even if like it's a huge reach, just let us know and then we can note that down. It makes our job easier and then it makes sort of like a better, you know, there's like a better sense of trust. In terms of like making my life harder, I, I don't think, I think the only thing I would say is for writers to keep in mind that publicity is, as Sugi said, it is a mystery. I mean, I think in a sense, it's it's the mystery to publicists and to people in the publishing industry. It's never guaranteed. It's not paid for. You know, it's the job of the publicist is to do their research and line up everything as best as they can to create the sort of environment that review coverage can happen and to kind of, you know, follow up and get in touch with the media. But it's there's so many things that are beyond a publicist's control. Um, you know, Carla was mentioning the news environment that we're in today is completely unpredictable. And sometimes, you know, you might have, uh, you know, an interview that's ready to go on air on the radio, and then there's some breaking news. And just to keep in mind that um, just as your publicist needs to be like rolling with it and nimble, you know, as, as a writer to understand that that is in the mix. There's so many things that we can't control. This is Carla. I definitely agree with all of that. Um, I always call publicity a very strange alchemy of, I mean, factors that some we have control over and others we just don't. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for gratitude, not just for this, <laughs> but for the people who are talking about your book, even if they don't have you know, thousands of followers, like being responsive as much as you can and as much as makes sense for your schedule. But like keeping in mind that people who do champion your book are championing your book and like every piece of word of mouth helps. Um, so it's not just the huge people on top that you feel like you want to be mm-hmm. shouting your book from the rooftops, but, you know, bloggers who have smaller followings because they're still reaching out to people and saying, hey, this is a great book you should read. And that really accumulates over time when people start to realize that this person didn't just, you know, throw this book into the world and expect people to read it and love it. But they're also like being really responsive and generous with their with their gratitude because people want to know that you appreciate them for for being on, you know, being on your side. Um, Also, just I mean, I guess in terms of like advice for writers, Always keep in mind that like everyone's publication journey is very different. Books Mm. move at different speeds. There can be enormous buzz for a book and then maybe it drops off for a little bit or there's like nothing at publication and then like a year later it blows up. We really can't predict when this will happen. But keeping in mind that like comparison Olympics are going to be your very worst enemy. Um, Mm. We're all subject to anxiety about future success, but I think obviously for writers, the stakes can feel really, really high because it's your baby. It's, you know, usually something you've been working on in isolation, sometimes for years, and then suddenly Mm. the whole world is privy to it. So it's obviously going to be a very emotional process. Um, And some of the conversations that I valued the most with writers that I've worked with have been the honest ones where they tell me exactly how they're feeling in the moment, the specific issues or the questions that have been plaguing them at night, 
Because getting to the root of those fears really eliminates a lot of the kind of unspoken tension that can make the publication process feel kind of contentious or opaque. Your publicist is there for you, like not just to try to get your book placed in magazines, but also to answer your questions and be there to just be like, yes, how you're feeling is normal. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel, I don't know, angry at this bad (laughs) review. Like these are completely human emotions, but not communicating that can really make that relationship start to just break down. That is Um, so so, true. Yeah, (laughs) just be honest. Like we're all in it. We're all trying to you know, make this book successful. We're all deeply invested. We all love it. You're entering into the therapy part of your job. (laughs) No, it's literally that. And honestly, I usually tell people that being a teacher of like middle and high school students was unexpectedly really great training (laughs) for working in publicity because like it's a lot of, you know, I'm, you know, trying to help people learn this brand new thing that for a lot of authors is like, you know, they're going into this and they're like, I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> so well, I want to say, really I want to add something that Karen and Carla are probably too nice to say uh, that to writers. Rule number one, do not get mad at your publicist. Do not blame <laughs> your publicist for things that they can't control. And maybe send about half as many emails as you are sending to your publicist. <laughs> Or one third. That's those are well, my those are my things that I would suggest. We talked a little bit about some some wonderful books by um, people from different identities, identities that haven't traditionally been most represented in publishing. You know, we we did an earlier episode on um, inclusivity and specifically race in publishing. And uh, Karen, you were talking about you know letting your publicist know kind of like what your dreams are. And then Carly used the phrase comparison Olympics, which I'm totally guilty of having engaged in. And I was realizing that, you know, no one in my family has been in this career before. And so sort of the reference points, like one of the ways that I've gotten reference points for my expectations has probably been through comparison Olympics. How do I enlarge the size of my vision without sort of engaging in the comparison Olympics? And how do you help your writers who are, say, writing out of marginalized identities or um, communities that haven't been represented in publishing as much to contend with um, the sometimes different approaches that people take to them. I'm putting that as euphemistically as I possibly can. <laughs> and I'm really, frankly, not sure why. But I think, you know, I think that, like, to be, I'll be just be blunt about it. I think that, you know, writers who are coming from those communities are sometimes, um, like, reviewers um, will approach them differently. Uh, they'll be covered differently. Their content will be addressed in different ways. How do you help those people? Oh, that is a, yeah, this is Karen. Yeah. That is a great question. Um, in terms of the first part, um, uh, getting ideas without sinking into a spiral of comparison, perhaps a good way to approach that is, you know, building around yourself like a close a close circle of writer friends that, you know, it's it's not as toxic maybe as just going on, you know, Twitter and seeing who's on the bestseller list and blah, blah, blah. It's someone that, you know, you have like a, a an intimate, you know, close relationship with that you can be honest about, you know, your publication processes and like sort of help each other through it um, instead of approaching the comparison from like an adversarial um, perspective. 
And then um, to the point of helping authors from, you know, communities who are underrepresented in publishing, I would just go back to the point of, you know, making sure that it's an honest and open conversation between the writer and the publicist. Publishing overall is um, a very wide space and um, Mm -hmm. it's very important for writers to be, um, you know, open about, I think, how, what do they not want? reviewers to what do you not want your publicist to pitch your book as for example I think is an important conversation to have this is Carla and I I like fully agree with that I've actually had authors who have done just that and it's been incredibly helpful not just in terms of my pitching but also just giving me a better sense of who this author is and and that and it's letting me know that they're really thoughtful about the ways that books are being covered um, and knowing that for a lot of reviewers, this is kind of default, you know, like, yes, publishing is a very white space. So when I'm working with an author who is not white um, and who exists outside of whatever binary um, the publishing world is most used to, I do have to be thoughtful about pitching it in the way that feels that is authentic to them. Um, I'd also say just keep in mind that, like I said, there's there's such a multiplicity of places to be covered. Um, it's really important for me as a publicist, but also I think writers should be thinking about this too. Like, who is covering you? Don't think outside of the places where you feel like, the places that where you think make or break an author. Um, because that's just not the case anymore, because there's so mm. many places where readers can discover new books. So, for example, a book that I worked on when I was at Riverhead, There Will Be No Miracles Here by Casey Gerald. Um, he was interviewed on the podcast The Nod, which is a Black culture podcast um, by Gimlet Media. Um, and it was just such a fantastic and eye-opening interview um, with two Black hosts. So they were able to have a conversation that I felt like was had a slightly different tenor than the conversations that he was having elsewhere. Um, and, you know, that can be for a number of reasons. But honestly, you know, having speaking to someone in media who kind of gets you without you having to give them a lot of preface or, or explanation or, you know, I just think that really gave the interview a level of authenticity and it just kind of broke the ice immediately that um, I know my author, Casey, really appreciated and that the podcast hosts also appreciated. So like thinking outside of those typical places, like really look around and see who is making media and who is looking for different things to cover. It may not be a books, you know, a podcast or a book um, website or something, but people are looking for new and interesting ways to cover culture. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely something to keep in mind when you want to um, make sure that you're author is being pitched to places that will respect them and respect their their the content of their book and who they are as a person. Uh, so we've spent a fair amount of time on the show talking about teaching and writing, but what about publishing and writing and publicity and writing? Um, how do your careers as a publicist support your careers as writers and vice versa? Um, this is Karen. I would say that... Um, they both inform um, each other. So as a writer, uh, my job experience in publicity is 
helping to demystify the publicity and publishing process overall. Um, it's keeping me plugged into the literary community. Um, it allows me to kind of be a sponge and soak up everything, um, reviews and going to events and getting to work with authors that I love and am inspired by. And then I think from a publicist point of view, um, being a writer helps me have a, an acute understanding, I think, of the anxieties that writers do have in the publicity process and, um, you know, allows me to be uh, more creative, perhaps, in my pitching. And, um, yeah, I think that's, uh, they, they're definitely very symbiotic. This is Carla. Symbiotic was exactly the word I was going to use. Um, <laughs> it's really helpful to work with, sometimes work with editors or reviewers um, on one front, on the publicity front for my authors, but then also just as like, would you be interested in this essay? Or do you have someone else at the publication that would be interested in this essay? Um, really shoring up my pitching skills. Um, I guess I didn't go into publicity knowing how much that would translate. Um, when I started this job, I was freelancing before. Um, and when I realized how much pitching I was going to have to do, I was like, oh, wow, I'm glad I got all this practice pitching my own stuff because now I'm pitching for other authors. So really getting a sense of what people are looking for, how to write a really concise pitch, how to write a good subject line is something I did not think would be as vital as it is for publicity, but like it's really shoring up my writing skills in general in ways that I was surprised by, but is really, really helpful. Carla and Karen, what a treat to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Listeners, don't forget to check out Karen's Fiction Online at the Asian American Writers Workshop website and Carla's essay in the Well-Read Black Girl Anthology. We'll put links up on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. And you can find them both on Twitter at Carla Was Like and Karen Waigu, plus Algonquin Books and Grey Wolf Press. All of those are Twitter handles, which we will also link to in our show notes. Thanks so much. Thank you, Carla and Karen. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Thanks. You too. This week, the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Um, look, I'm a huge fan of this online streaming service. I've used it for years, actually, you know, and it's a way for you to expand your knowledge. If you didn't study something in college, you don't know about philosophy or you want to learn about Shakespeare, or medieval Europe or photography, you know, you can go. There's like thousands of lectures that you can listen to on here presented by experts who are not only you know, knowledgeable, but they're passionate about their subjects. They're often professors who teach this stuff, which is right up our alley as far as the uh, literary podcast goes. And today we wanted to tell you that The Great Courses Plus has a wonderful course that we recommend starting with called The Great Utopian and Dystopian Works of Literature. I can't imagine why we Talking might think that this would appeal to the listeners of our podcast. Dystopia comes up like once a week, at least. And yeah, I mean, basically every episode in some regard. Um, and we thought that this course was a really fascinating exploration into the evolution of the genre. And it includes grounding in its origins and takes you all the way up to contemporary authors like Margaret Atwood and Suzanne Collins, uh, Octavia Butler, and the impact well, all that people these we've were- discussed on this show, by the way. 
Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about Severance by Ling Ma in this particular podcast. That's a dystopian novel. But, I mean, I listen to these lectures and to get a grounding in what, where dystopian and utopian novels came from, to talk again, to be reminded of what Sir Thomas More's Utopia was about, to talk about Candide, talk about Gulliver's Travels. I mean, this depth that literature brings to contemporary conversation is exactly the kind of stuff that, you know, the great courses can do for you. So we have arranged a special limited time offer for our listeners, which is a month of unlimited Great Courses Plus for free. And you can explore the great utopian and dystopian works of literature and quite a bit more. To get that special offer, you have to sign up through our URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. I mean, it's free, people. You know, you're listening to our podcast for free. You're used to stuff that's free. This is going to be free. <laughs> you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. And now we're excited to welcome Tom Barbash to the podcast. His excellent new novel, The Dakota Winters, is named for the famed Upper West Side apartment building where his main characters, Anton and Buddy Winter, live along with a roster of well-known New Yorkers, including John Lennon. People Magazine calls the novel Gossipy Nostalgic Gold. Tom is also the author of the 2013 short story collection Stay Up With Me, which was a national bestseller, and the novel The Last Good Chance, which won the California Book Award. His nonfiction book, On Top of the World, Cantor Fitzgerald, Howard Lutnick, and 9-11, was a New York Times bestseller. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me, Whit. So, Tom, the Dakota Winters was published just a little more than a month ago, and it's been getting a great critical reception. Congratulations on that. When did you first start working with your publicist on this book, and what were the first things you did? Well, about maybe four months before the book came out, um, and the first thing you do is you fill out the author's questionnaire. Um, so you start, you, you, you talk about your conception of the book, and you also put down a lot of different people that you know in the world of books where uh, the publicist might send out galleys and might start reaching out to people. And uh, I made sure, too, that he knew all the different people who'd reviewed the book before. Um, I mean, not not that book, who'd reviewed Stay Up With Me and The Last Good Chance, just to know. Uh, so he knew the people who knew my work and had been excited about it before. Tom, I was going to ask you, um, you know, we hear a lot about the idea of being a literary citizen um, and how that is both, you know, the right thing to do and also helpful for your own work to be in conversation with others. How did that sort of play into filling out your publicity campaign or thinking about how you wanted to approach it or giving you a community within, within which to do it. Yeah, I think, I think it's a huge part of it. I mean, I, I think um, in the years between books, I spent a lot of time bringing writers out to the Bay Area, you know, for, for readings at my college, California College of the Arts. I also do a lot of things for the local bookstores. I'll, I'll be in conversations with other writers. I just love doing it. And I publicize my friends' books when they come out. I, I, I try to do shout outs to them on Facebook or Twitter um, because it's fun to do. And and I think we we look out for one another. I will say something about the Bay Area. It's an amazing place to be a writer because of the community. It's it's everybody seems to know everybody else and, and people look out for one another. 
And um, so I, I, you know, there's a few places. There's there's a place called the Grotto where people have offices. You know, there the various MFA programs. But I do think it, it's a it's a good place to know a lot of other people and um, and uh, and and to, to to get some kind of community. Um, in and of itself. But then when you have a book come out, it's not like you're starting at ground zero because people have been hearing about your book and, and been wanting to help out, you know, especially if you're the sort of person who's been helping them out. So you got this kind of um, this community helping you. And of course, they're talking about your work and you're talking about their work. And then you have to sit down with your publicist and describe your book um i mean is that an elevator pitch or what was your experience of doing that for the dakota winters well sugi as you know and what you know too there, there's it's so distasteful sometimes when you've been working on this book and it's got a lot of complexity and you're, you have to sit down and my and book t- means everything yes <laughs> it's it when you read that. my book you will understand <laughs> the world and then your head will explode and that's the end it's the last book <laughs> And it's, but it's it's kind of essential that you do have have ways of describing it that get people excited about it. I remember having the problem with my first book, The Last Good Chance, and I'd say, well, it's a guy living in a very, you know, downtrodden upstate New York. I'd start, you know, before I was done with my first sentence, the person had sort of moved on in their mind. <laughs> um, maybe don't put downtrodden in the first sentence. No, upstate exactly. New York. <laughs> Well, you know, and, and actually the first time they described Stay Up With Me, I remember that we had these little cards printed up and one said, you know, Barbash describes perfectly the loneliness and dep- I can't remember what it was, but it was this incredibly depressing description of the book. Um, so you do have to, which we altered a little bit later on. Um, so I, I do think having a, a sense of, of what's the first thing people are going to hear about your book, it's, it is pretty important. We're talking about they describe, I describe, we describe, other people describe. I mean, how much control do you have over the descriptions? Did you, did you say write your jacket copy or collaborate on writing your jacket copy, or how how did that work for you? Well, I would say to all writers, make sure that you're in on it. Make sure that you look at it and it sounds like the book you wrote and sounds like a description of your. Uh, I, I think in this case with um, the Dakota Winters. The first go at the jacket copy looked pretty good, and there were tweaks that I did um, on it, and I think made it even stronger. There were like just a, a couple beats um, that that, and I I like the jacket copy now. Um, but there have been times uh, in the past where I hadn't, you know, with with some of the other books, and I with uh, on top of the world. I did all the jacket copy on that, and it's just you know your book better than other people. I mean, you do have to be able to step outside of it. So that you 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 know you, you you describe it in such a way that other people can understand, but um, don't feel shy about that. I would say to writers because you know you're going to have to live with it, and it's really important. I think uh, some reviewers uh, will almost grab right from the jacket copy. Oh and, yes, in the reviews. So um, I had one other question talking about jacket copy and jacket appearance. The photo for the jacket. Um, which is beautiful. I mean, I, I have the galley, so I'm assuming this is the same as on the hardcover. But, uh, um, you know, it's a, it's a picture of the building itself. And then you also have in the sky part of the, of the right next to the, you know, t- top roof line of the building is a Shaban quote. Deft, funny, touching. That's not downtrodden. That's <laughs> starts. Right, 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 right. So did you choose that quote to be there? Did you guys discuss how the book was going to look when somebody picks it up? 
Yeah, I, th- I thought it was a great quote from it. And also because, you know, I mean, uh, there it, it describes that particular quote, what it says, a marvel, it says, um, you know, an evocation of a dark passage in the history of New York City. And I like that it mentioned the darkness in the book because the book has, you know, there's there's uh, this, this talk show host and, there, and some of it is pretty funny, I hope. And then, but there is this undercurrent, this kind of dark undercurrent. And I thought that quote captured it in a way that, uh, that was perfect for it. And I was, I mean, I was so thrilled that, you know, Michael, who's a, a hero of mine as a novelist, you know, uh, wrote that blurb for it. The other thing that I like about the jacket copy is that it's a, uh, it's, it's the font is from back in the seventies and eighties. It has that old. Oh, cool. So, um, and so the de- description, I mean, the, I mean, the decision to, to use that font for my name and for the Dakota winters, uh, I thought was great. And I love, I love the shot of the building. Uh, my editor, Megan Lynch, said that she wanted to make sure with the title that people weren't confused, that they didn't go to it expecting a novel of the Great Plains. You know, so <laughs> have, have the building itself, you know, was important along so that people weren't completely misled by the title. So, Tom, your novel is partly about publicity and about fame and the currency of fame. Can you tell us a little bit about Anton Winters and his relationship with his father, Buddy Winters, and, and read to us from the novel? Because if I were your publicist, I would really want you to do that before you went on answering any more of our questions about publicity. Yeah, and that's a really astute read of the book because it is a strange role for a son to have. Is is he's been working on his father's show, and and for for people who don't know the book, the father Buddy Winter, who's kind of like a Dick Cavett slash Johnny Carson talk show host, um, had walked off his own show a couple of years before the start of the novel with ner- had it basically a nervous breakdown on air, um, and now he's trying to get a new show. And Anton is is doing a lot of the legwork and and trying to they, they they're involved in what their agent describes a charm offensive so (laughs) which is let's let's see what we can do let's let's reposition buddy let's see if we can remind people of what he used to be and so the passage i'm going to read will give you a sense of what what buddy used to be you couldn't spout cliches on the buddy winter show or be too scripted or too safe that was a different audience Our viewership was notoriously smart and current, a prized demographic for sellers of upscale alcohol, cars, and clothes. The guests were the wild card, of course, which was both the magic of it and what caused problems. Ones who came in drunk or tired or medicated or manic or, in the case of Shelley Winters, all of the above. On a few nights, it felt like you'd close down the bar with my father, imagine him wiping the bar, and say, Lauren Bacall, as she excoriated Frank Sinatra, who romanced her after Bogart died and eventually proposed, but told her, she said, not to tell anyone. At a black tie event, she told a friend in confidence, who managed to whisper it to Swifty Lazar, who that night wrote about it in The Examiner. She called Sinatra after the story ran, and he told her what was done was done, but they'd have to lay low for the time being. It's like you robbed a bank, Buddy said. In his eyes, I had. Then what happened? Oh, she said. Well, he never spoke to me again after that. Someone gasped. Lester, I think. He'll get his, Buddy said. Time wounds all heals. (laughs) Nearly every night, something notable happened. Brawls between guests, actors breaking out in song, astounding exhibitions of magic and sword swallowing and ping pong playing, politicians, sports stars, musicians and revolutionaries. And once a guest actually died on stage during the commercial break of an unwitnessed cardiac arrest. And that show never aired. And is something that haunted us both. How someone entirely alive one minute could be gone the next. The breakdown was simmering for a long while. 
We just didn't see it right away. He started to get agitated over small things, couldn't let them go. And around the house, he was restless. And he got weirdly upset on the tennis court. He accused his opponents of cheating on meaningless points. And he accused all of us of undercutting him or insulting him in conversations when we mostly were having trouble following his thoughts. It was stress, he said. He'd be better. Later, he would say it was like bad weather in that you couldn't plan for it or keep it from happening. You couldn't you could have a month of clear days and then two months of storms. He'd had two months of storms leading up to the day he walked out on his show. He'd started getting into it with guests. At first, it was overlooked because he was responding with his sharp wit. And one critic said it was thrilling to see Buddy Winter laying into the most coddled of movie stars and rock stars and pampered politicians. I thought he looked like a bully, which he'd never, ever been. He started drifting in conversations. Not everyone would notice, but I did. I prepped him the same as always, but he started going off script and baiting good people into pointless disagreements. A comic sued him for stealing his material, a solid but unmemorable joke about a blackout looter breaking into Alexander's and finding nothing worth taking. While the case went nowhere, the guy told a joke once about a discerning criminal, but he seethed at having to hear accusations of his piracy from tabloid reporters and a tuxedoed stranger who called him a thief from the window of a passing cab. Then there was Leon, the Leona Helmsley joke that fell worse than flat. He'd always poked fun at the letters that ran as ads in the Times Magazine, supposedly penned by the hotel queen. He said in his monologue one night to my horror, it's too bad the son of Sam didn't gun down old Leona instead of one of those kids. I'd write the letter for that one. Thank you so much, Tom. One of the things I love about the book is Anton's awareness of what makes really makes for good publicity or good TV. But, you know, television is a really different industry than books. And with the exception of posting on social media, here come my galleys, today's my book's birthday, all that stuff, you know, that we do, um, and I do. Uh, none of the other things that I ended up doing for my last book, which came out in 2016, seemed all that different than what I did in 20- 2001 when I published my first one. You know, we still send out blurb solicitations. We type up the list of media people and friends, which we were just talking about earlier, who should get the galleys. We schedule our reading tour. And yet I wonder, does any of this really work? Yeah, I mean, I I think that in some way it has to look effortless. And yet I think the best thing that can happen is that people feel like the book's everywhere, you know, and so that and that actually takes both work, but it can't look, it, it's hard. I guess you don't want, it seems unseemly in some ways to, to, to look like you're, you're publicizing constantly. But on the other hand, um, if you don't do it, other people are, if you're not getting the word out, no one else will to a certain extent. I mean, you do, and you do have to get over that. What I always tell people psychologically to my students and my friends are doing it is that you have to think of it like there's two people, you know, there's, there like in your case, wit. there's the wit who, who went away, there's you who, who wrote the book, and then there's the, the person who's publicizing the book. And if the person who's publicizing this book doesn't do his job, he's, he's undercutting the writer who, who worked so hard all those years. So psychologically, you have to, you have to get over that. But yeah, in terms of, of, of what you were saying about how it was years ago, there were many more daily uh, newspapers that were writing reviews. There's, there's many, way fewer outlets. Um, and, um, but there's a lot more outlets for things like interviews with writers, places like Lit Hub, places like The Rumpus, um, which are, are, are great venues. And they um, sort of so- have taken over the role of the you know, Metropolitan Daily uh, in terms of book review coverage, I feel like, um, 
you know, at LitHub, obviously, is our parent publication. And then the other thing that used to exist was if you went for a reading, the reason you did a reading tour is you went into a town in order to read there, but also get on the radio yeah. before your reading. And that doesn't happen that much anymore. I don't, th- at least not in the same way that it used to, I think. Is that your guys' experience? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just did a, 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 a radio show in Minneapolis, but it wasn't around a reading. And yeah, and I, and I don't think, that I, I, I think in general that I, the, the bookstore um, tours, I think they're cutting back a little bit on that in, in general, but I still, I love it. Um, I just went back east and I was in New York and I was in Boston and um, I, I it, it's because there's a kind of lead up to it and then hopefully you get a lot of people out and then there's a kind of excitement that follows afterwards and it's just, I think it's a good chance for writers just to connect with readers in some kind of way because because you are alone all, all that. So I hope they don't do away with it altogether. Because- I don't want them to. I love it. I love it too. I just think it's it seems... I still think it matters to go to a city and people come out and 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 show up and that and I think and I think it can lead to reviews in the in the paper in that city but it, the 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 coordination of like your NPR station your local NPR station doing an interview with you before your reading and then the reading happens and that seems different and like not quite uh, as solid a connection as it used to be. Yeah. I think Minneapolis must be really an outlier in this regard because we have uh, the Star Tribune here has a really strong book section. And I remember, I mean, when I moved here, I hadn't been reading the Star Tribune before, really, and was so pleasantly surprised and realized I had grown up reading um, the Washington Post Book World and just had sort of taken for granted um, a strong, strong local books coverage. And then by the time I moved here, my expectations had changed so much. I mean, I feel grateful for the Star Tribune book section all the time. They have... Um, a strong local community of reviewers, people from from other places, um, a strong set of independent bookstores. I think it's actually really unusual. And I mean, I do remember, I, I definitely have the strong impression that radio and reviews are two things that really sell books. And it seems to me like a huge part of having readings also is to create that community because writing and reading are often such solitary acts, but also to create a moment at which theoretically you could publish the book. And since so much of that is now moving away from right that moment, it's kind of like an art opening, right? You could, you can go to the museum <laughs> all the time, but if there's an opening, um, right. then there's sort of this, this moment when like, Oh, have you considered purchasing? Have you considered purchasing the art? And like, that also seems like this important moment when you sort of, you know, you walk behind the the desk of the bookstore or wherever they have set up for you to sign books. And you sort of say, I am as gracefully as possible selling my book. <laughs> and I know Tommy used the word unseemly before. And I think that this is like one of the delicate balances, right? Of the whole thing that we're so we're interested in publicity. And yet also we're these retiring types who would like to go into our rooms and invent people as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that one positive uh, new thing in, in, in the sort of in these events is the idea of being in conversation with someone. I always, I find yeah. it so much better because there's something about just being there by yourself and demanding all the attention on you. And it's, it's very, it makes you self-conscious. And it just, there's something that completely changes when you have another writer up there and the two of you are, are at, at, or, or more than that, you, you have some kind of a conversation going. And if you can make it a little bit of a, a get together for people. I always try to say when I'm coming in, I, I provide, I often provide beer and wine with the idea that people are going to linger and hang out with each other. I mean, I just had this picture of you descending from the airplane with a giant backpack full of beer. (laughs) 
it's pretty much that. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 right, exactly. With 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 my twelve pack. All right, um, I'm in town for my reading. <laughs> but there's something about it that's just it, it, it feels better, you know, to do it that way. And Sugi, I will say something about your community too. I was just on a radio show. I don't know if you know the Lori and Julia show. So it's a and they have this book talk, and it's in Minneapolis. And then I also got a review at the in the Minneapolis newspaper. So maybe it's something that that it, individual cities don't have to follow the trends, and they can just say, you know what, we'll buck the trends. We'll do a, a daily review. We'll have you on the radio. You know, we'll create a vibrant community, and maybe those deserve to have the best reputations. We can sort of build things back community by community. Everyone come to Minneapolis. <laughs> uh, so how much of this is the the key to this is um, who your publicist is because, um, you know, there's a hierarchy of publicists at any publishing house, right? And and if you have a more senior publicist with more clout, is that sending signals to different media organizations that the publisher is serious about you? Is is that um, a thing that makes a difference? Or am I am I concocting? I, you see, I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I think writers are often left out or, and, and to a certain extent, it, I don't. I don't know that we should be aware of what's happening in terms of that decision-making process. I mean, I, I got. I have a terrific publicist at Echo, and I also think that that my particular publishing situation uh, seems kind of perfect to me because. I have Echo has a small list, but it's in a big house, you know, because it's it's got the the power, the marketing power of HarperCollins, but it's a small list within that big house. So you do feel like you have individual attention and yet you're in a sort of large, you're, you're in that kind of larger, powerful organization, you know, of a big publisher. So, cause there's always that debate. Is it better to have a small publisher or a big publisher? But yeah, in terms of, of how much your, your publicist does, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I assume because of all the attention. Well, they're not going to say to you, well, Tom, you're getting our four string publicist, then no. maybe we'll move you up to third <laughs> string next time. You know, I mean, that's not how that works, but I do think, it does make a difference. I think it, looking at it, you know, from the outside, I think there, I think there is a hierarchy of publicists, like who's been there, you know, they're given different titles, right? There's somebody's the, is the VP of pub, you know, and somebody's the head of the publishing department and somebody's just a publicist, right? Those, those things, I think those make a difference. I think they do. And I, and I'm, I've been thrilled with, with the work that's been done for me here, but I also had um, someone who was not a senior publicist, at Simon and Schuster for Stay Up with Me, with this was in England, and she did an incredible job. It, it was like one of her first books, and she just knocked herself out and did, and it was everywhere. So, um, so that I did not get the senior person. I got this really energetic person who was new to the business, and I couldn't have been more happy with with what came of it. So, you know, you it, and had I pushed for someone with a bigger reputation, that would have been a mistake in that instance. I was I, I was given someone who was terrific. That is such a good point. Um, I mean, I, my, my publicist, uh, I mentioned earlier, Sarah Skiri, for my last book, who was terrific, but she was very experienced. But for my second book, The King of Kings County, uh, Laura Tisdell was the publicist, and she's now an editor. You know, she moved up in the business, but she did such a great job. A shout out to Laura that I remember what a great job she did. Um, and But she was really new, brand new, and she but she just really busted her ass, and that was... Yeah really what that book needed. 
Yeah, and, and, and I should give a shout out to Martin Wilson, who's my publicist now at Echo. And then that time, uh, my publicist at the time at, at Simon Schuster was, was this uh, young woman, Elizabeth Preston, and she did just a great job. So, and um, yeah, it was fun. Um, and also just someone who wasn't burnt out on the job and just was, it was as fun for her as it was for me. So it was great. So Tom, um, you know, in all of this, you've had some wonderful um, publicity hits. You had an NPR interview with Scott Simon, which we'll link to in our show notes. That is a hard and one to book. So you should, you know, I'm sure you uh, <laughs> bought your uh, publicist a drink for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and there have been that, that great review in People. I love that um, gossipy gold phrase, uh, which is so, <laughs> makes your makes your novel sound so juicy. And, and you mentioned in GQ and a bunch of other publications. So I'm curious about what your white whale is. Like, who who would you want to say wonderful things about the Dakota Winters? I think there's something nice about the fact that um, that it's happened in stages. So there's something about it all happening at once. And then just, it feels like every weekend there's something else that just came out. I had this thing. My book comes out in England on January 10th. So I got this great review in British GQ that I wasn't expecting. A lot of these I don't know. I got a Washington Post review that I didn't know about. And then I just, you know, it just appeared and, and someone told me about it. But I will say in terms of a white whale, I feel like it, to a certain extent I had it. You know, you guys mentioned Scott Simon. That was just so much fun. And then that whole, I can't tell you how many people heard that interview. Yeah. It's just absolutely everybody had. And then the sales, you know, over that weekend were just insane. Everybody like seemed to have heard the interview and then bought it immediately. And so it, it, it was, it was great. And he's such a great guy. I mean, I mean, I haven't met him, but just, you know, instantly I felt connected to him in that, although I felt very nervous, but, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was like, I, was like, I had to sort of remind myself to breathe by the end of the sentence. But, um, but it was it, that that was great, and uh, and NPR is because you have to think of who are the people that are listening to NPR. Also, they're they're people that read books, that read literature. That's the right audience, you know. And and it runs all day on the day. It just loops, and so there's a good chance that that um, most of the people that are going to be you know interested in buying your book are going to have heard you that day. So that that was just great. I think radio does move books, and I think one thing that I wanted to mention is that we talked about you know how some uh, the you know, the local NPR interview, a local affiliate interview is kind of sort of passing by a little bit, although we have two really good shows here in Kansas City that do want do them up to date with my, my friend Steve Kraske has a show and then uh, and Central Standard. They still do author interviews, but podcasts like this one also have is a new market for like talking about um, books that didn't exist when I was first coming out with books. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, I think it's a perfect venue, you know. And 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 who are the people that are listening to the podcast and listening to your podcast? They're people that that are interested in books. So yeah, it's a great place, and it's new. We didn't have these right when our books, our first books, came out. No. So, um, Tom, I want to sneak in one last slightly silly question, um, but hopefully also a fun question before we before we finish up. But. Um, Whitney was reminding me of Martin Amos's old habit of doing something outrageous before a new novel would come out. Um, and Do you remember that when he <laughs> when he he like switched publishers, fired his agent, got a whole big advance, and then fixed his teeth before the information and that came out. The novel, the information came out, and that became this huge story. I don't know if you guys remember that. This was I love that mid nineties. And I'm just, well, yeah, I was wondering if there was a story like that that you found sort of particularly one that had gotten your attention to a book in a way that you hadn't expected or um, a stunt that you wish you had pulled. 
I, he's a perfect example, you know. And actually, I read his his um, memoir of his father was was a really big book as I was researching my own Anton's relationship to Buddy. The idea of Anton's oh. relationship, oh, interesting. yeah, was 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 great for me to to read about having a famous father and and having to come out from underneath that. But um, but he was also, you know, that is the, 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 there's something that's lost is that whole sense of of the bad boy, you know. And I mentioned, you know, of literature. Um, I uh, make mention in the book. Um, so what the novel that was out there that everyone was talking about is the Executioner's Song. So there's a discussion that Anton and his younger brother Kip have. Anton's reading the Executioner's Song and they talk about Mailer's stabbing his wife, you know, and then moving on to greater literary fame. That idea of, of, of just doing crazy things like this. I do think we're in an entirely different era. I don't think stabbing one's wife is going to bring you liter- good literary <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Some advancements in our time. No, but getting in a big Twitter fight might with the right person, you know, that might be yeah. that might be the equivalent now. Has that actually happened, though? Has someone gotten in a big Twitter fight and then sold a ton of books as a result? I have no idea. I know I, I well, this relates to what we've talked about in some earlier episodes about how social media works, that. By getting in fights, you attract more followers. And then, you know, in other words, I think that publicists look at the number of social media followers a person has and take that into account when they're thinking about how to publicize their book. Yeah, that that, that may be. Um, so I, 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 I need to start getting into some fights. You're too nice, Tom. You don't get into fights. I don't I don't see what this is the major drawback of your entire campaign. Before Tom fights with us, we should probably have <laughs> Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for a brawl, guys. You ready to rumble? <laughs> I do want to mention before we um, wrap up also that we did an episode earlier on advances, and that's often discussed as a way to get publicity. And I think what we're getting at here is that there are all of these other things that are in play that don't get as much attention, like radio, like local media, like literary websites and literary community and word of mouth. And those are not as sexy as the big check. So um, I hope that our listeners are also um, oh, well, there's go one back other and thing take a listen have, to that episode. Yes, that's a really good suggestion, Sugi. Thank you for making that. And that was with uh, Arthur Phillips and Oscar Villalon. And uh, I also want to mention the one thing we haven't done and talked about that people tend to do is the writing of the op-ed around the time that the book comes out or the writing of something. Oh, yeah. Right? Did you do that, Tom? Did you do the no. writing of the op-ed? <laughs> I, 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 it's something that I still should do. I didn't do it clearly. I didn't do it around the publication day, but I, I do think it's a great thing to do. And, um, you know, and, and, and with subjects around your, um, your novels, uh, subject matter. Um, so, uh, and, but I, I've got some ideas, so one may be forthcoming. So. (laughs) All right. We'll be on the lookout. (laughs) Okay. Um, but no, I think I, I, that, I think it's, I, uh, a writer friend, Matthew Clam, I was talking to him about, you know, he, we were talking about book publicity and how it's changed. And he made this point that he thought there are ways you can do it through an op-ed that's not about your book, but it's essentially describing the world in such a way that your book becomes necessary as part of the conversation. So the, the most central conversation that's going on right now, which I'm describing this op-ed, just happens to dovetail to the subject matter of my book in that way. So it is, it's, it's a way of saying, you know, you must read this now because it's part of the conversation you're all having anyway. So. I like that way of thinking about it. That's really helpful because sometimes it feels like, you know, you'll be asked to write something to promote your book and you'll sort of think about, I mean, yeah, how can you do that in a way that is, um, 
that feels graceful and natural to your writing life and feels like part of the conversation around the book rather than just sort of shilling for it. And it seems really hard. And, and another person I think who does this really well, who builds a literary community and, and promotes um, the work of others while also writing in a way that kind of fits into the conversation around her book is, is Reese Kwan, R.O. Kwan, who's yeah. the incendiaries came out um, recently. And, and it's been wonderful also to watch that book's journey. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of mine, I mean, the thing that, that it, it, sometimes it takes a while for that stuff to surface for you, but for me, my book in, in the way that it's resonating with a lot of people is our unhealthy relationship with the idea of fame, with this intense desire to be famous, this intense desire to be close to those who are famous. And even a talk show's role is sort of to humanize the famous, but when they become human, we imagine that they're our friends and, and we have expectations for them and they can somehow disappoint us. But of course, that's ridiculous since we don't know them. But that 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 seemed to really rise up, you know, in the Dakota as this sort of, you know, this, this respite, this escape for the famous and, um, you know, where you can feel safe and, and, and what happened to John, you know, which was the result of, of a deranged person feeling like John had let him personally down in some crazy way. So for me, and that, that's something that surfaced in 1980, that's still present today. And, um, any rate. So, but I think that to, to a certain extent, well, there's what you, the, there's what you told your publicist when you were trying to explain yeah. to her how to sell the book, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, but also no, but well, maybe that add, emerged as the book was going out. Sometimes you don't I was know. I going to say, I don't know how you guys feel, but I felt like with my stories, when I first was supposed to articulate it, I didn't know yeah. what they were about, but over, over, I felt like getting reviewed and hearing from readers was like being on a therapist couch. Yeah. You know, I, I, I began to figure out why I wrote what I wrote and what it added up to. But I think we're better off if we don't know during the conception of it, That's because true. then it yeah. would be too forced and didactic. And, you know, so I don't, I don't think we'd write as well if we knew the meaning, you know, all the way through the process. So, Tom, Definitely. thanks so much for being on the show. And we really encourage listeners to check out the Dakota Winters, which is out right now from HarperCollins. And after you read this book, you should, I don't know, Tom, what should they do? Give you a review on Amazon? Goodreads? Sounds, sounds great to me. So. The listeners are only allowed to do any of these things that they've already reviewed our podcast on iTunes. That is for damn sure. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks, guys. This was great. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Our transcriptionist is Damian Johansson, who this week also provided music for our ad. You can find the group's full credits and details on our show page on Facebook. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas, feedback, and conflicted thoughts about the fleeting nature of fame. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNFTalk, and on Facebook at FNF Pod, where we post links to our show notes, which will include some of the books and articles we talked about today. As always, happy reading and writing. Bye.